Welcome to the latest episode of British History, Royals, Rebels, and Romantics, the podcast for people who understand that history shows us what's possible for us in our lives today. I'm Carol Ann Lloyd, your host and tour guide as we travel back in time. We're shaking up history to look at the stories that don't always make the history books, to consider famous and infamous characters in new and interesting ways, and to look for all the things that we share even when we're living in different times and places. I hope you enjoy this journey through the royals, rebels, and romantics of Britain. Now, let's explore history together. Last week, we took a look at some of the ways young Princess Elizabeth may have honored her mother Anne Boleyn by wearing her jewelry, including an A pendant in the family of Henry VIII's portrait and parts of the famous B pendant in her own portrait. We also looked at the ways Elizabeth might have been influenced by her mother's example, using the elements of courtly love to navigate the male-centric court of England. Today, we're once again in the world of Queen Elizabeth I. I'm recording this right after September 7th, her birthday. In early September 1533, Anne was supposed to be getting ready to give the king a son. The birth of a son would justify the actions Henry VIII had taken, setting aside his first wife, going against the wishes of most of his ministers, breaking with Rome, and establishing himself as supreme head of the Church of England. Henry believed God would reward these actions by giving him the son he had wished for since coming to the throne almost 25 years previously. It seemed God had other plans. The baby was healthy, but the baby was a girl. This didn't end Henry's marriage to Anne Boleyn, but it changed things. He had counted on her giving him a son to prove him right. And yes, I think it was that much about him. That baby, the girl, the king was pleased she was healthy and boasted about how quickly she'd have a brother to join her. But for Henry, it was a blow. And for Anne, She must have realized in that moment that however she doted on and showered gifts on her little girl, she had failed in her quest to give the king a son. Mother and daughter faced incredible challenges the day Elizabeth was born. Their determination, as well as the fierce and feisty natures they possessed, would guide them through challenges and take them to very different ends. Your mistress I will not be. In Henry VIII's England, a woman's body was the only thing that was her own and sometimes even that was barely hers. Once a woman married, she turned over everything she owned to her husband, and legally, he owned everything she brought to the marriage, including herself. It was illegal for a man to kill his wife, but pretty pretty much everything else was allowed. When Anne Boleyn returned from the French court in the 1520s, she fell in love with Harry Percy, the heir to the Earl of Northumberland. The two wished to marry, but Cardinal Wolsey intervened. Some scholars think Henry VIII might have already had his eye on Anne, but actually most believe this young woman was just considered not high enough born to marry the son of an earl. Joke was on them because just a few few years later, the king himself was Anne's new suitor. Initially, Anne and the king engaged in courtly love, but it quickly became clear words were not enough for Henry VIII. He wanted Anne to be his mistress. Anne was not interested. She had seen her sister cast aside when the king was tired of her. 
Even Bessie Blount, the mistress who had given the king his only living son at the time, was pushed away. Anne was not interested in being used and abandoned by a lover, not even a royal lover. Henry was relentless, but Anne was firm. We don't often think of what a chance Anne was taking here. Henry could have become disenchanted and moved on, which seems to have been what Anne wanted initially. But he was king of England, and by this time in his reign, he was not used to hearing no. He continued to pursue Anne, even promising her she would be his only mistress if she accepted him. Anne was still not willing. In fact, she is reported to have said to Henry VIII, Your wife I cannot be, both in respect of my own unworthiness and also because you have a queen already. Your mistress I will not be. Now, of course, of course, we don't know for sure that Anne said such extreme words to the King of England, but these or very similar words are reported by various sources and accepted as part of the story told by such prestigious places as Hever Castle, Anne's childhood home. Whatever her exact words, we know Anne refused the king's advances and, despite pressure from him and from others to just give in already, she did not. Why? Some think it was because of her commitment to her faith and chastity. Others think she was scheming and ambitious and saw her chance to topple poor Queen Catherine of Aragon and steal her husband and her throne. The truth probably lies somewhere between these extremes. We do know that Anne kept Henry at arm's length, at least to some degree, from their early courtship in around 1526 until the end of 1532, when they had entered into a formal but secret betrothal and likely slept together while at Calais. So for years, Anne kept herself to herself. At some point during that time, the king decided to marry her. Anne is often accused of seducing the king, breaking up a happy family, taking him away from the queen and their daughter. It is certainly true that Anne said terrible things about Catherine and Princess Mary and that she treated Henry's daughter badly, but she didn't make Henry pursue her. In fact, if we look at this from a practical perspective, Anne was an employee of the court as a member of Catherine of Aragon's household. Henry was in charge of the court. He had all the power, except the power Anne kept over herself. Fierce and feisty, she managed to keep the king interested and eager for years. He decided that with his current wife past childbearing years and the need for a son paramount in his reign, he would find a new wife. And as was his pattern throughout his reign, he would choose the wife he wanted. He wanted Anne Boleyn. Once they were married, and especially once Elizabeth was born, Anne's power diminished. He now controlled her world. Their relationship was volatile, and throughout 1534 and 1535, they are frequently in each other's company, and so often described as being, quote, married together, that we know the king didn't turn away from her immediately after their daughter was born. But I think her reckless behavior in the final months of her life was her attempt to regain some of the power she had lost. She knew Henry VIII and his court, and she knew what was acceptable and what was not. Her words to Henry Norris, suggesting the king's death, were not acceptable. I think they're the emotional attempt of a woman struggling to regain power and a sense of control over her life. Tragically, these words led to the loss of her life instead. I will have but one mistress here and no master. When Elizabeth took the throne of England, her body was no longer solely her own. 
Baked into the fabric of medieval monarchy was the notion of the king's two bodies, the body natural and the body politic. The natural body was believed to be subject to illness, disability, and death. The body politic, however, was designed for the governance of the people and therefore was not subject to the ailments that could affect the natural body. The notion goes into great and complicated details, but the essence is that when the king's natural body dies, the heir immediately inherits the royal body politic, the rights, responsibilities, and capabilities of ruling. This theory had not always been an easy one to accept, and certainly the Wars of the Roses seemed to invalidate the idea that the two bodies were absolutely joined. Five times between 1461 and 1485, the throne of England changed hands by force or seizure rather than the death of the monarch and natural inheritance. Elizabeth made creative use of the notion of two bodies, a body personal, natural, and in her case, feminine, and a body powerful, governing, and unlimited in the body politic. One of the primary questions facing Elizabeth when she inherited the crown from her sister Mary I was that of marriage. Mary I had diligently done her duty as a woman by marrying within a year of taking the throne. This was fully expected. As a woman, she would be too weak, too emotional, and unworthy to rule on her own. Unfortunately, Mary's choice of Philip of Spain was not greeted with great rejoicing in all of England. The marriage raised alarms that Mary would place the needs and safety of her kingdom second to those of her husband, Spain. The Wyatt Rebellion broke out in response to Mary's Spanish husband and her willingness to do the bidding of the Emperor Charles. Ultimately, the marriage proved unsuccessful in its stated goal. Mary and Philip did not produce an heir to unite the two kingdoms into a greater Catholic nation. Mary squandered money and troops to support Philip's wars and lost England's final holding in France as a result. Philip quickly abandoned his wife when it became clear she would not bear him a child, and Mary died alone and miserable. That was the immediate example her half-sister Elizabeth had of marriage. Elizabeth had also been a witness to the marriage between her final and beloved stepmother, Catherine Parr, which had revealed to her a complicated relationship of sometimes improper desires. Then there were the marriages of her father. At less than three, she would have been too young to have had a strong impression of the sudden destruction of her mother, but she would have heard the stories throughout her life. Then there was the death of Jane Seymour, the dissolution of the marriage to Anne of Cleves, the execution of Catherine Howard, and the final marriage to Catherine Parr. We don't know if Elizabeth knew just how close Henry's final wife came to a perilous fall. Within just a few days of inheriting her half-sister's throne, Elizabeth's choice of husband was a topic of public discourse. Count Feria wrote to Philip of Spain, The more I think about this business, the more certain I am that everything depends upon the husband this woman may take. And a German diplomat wrote, The queen is of an age where she should, in reason, as is woman's way, be eager to marry and be provided for for that she should wish to remain a maid and never marry, is inconceivable. Her very first parliament petitioned her to marry as part of its official business. From the moment she was born, as daughter of a king, Elizabeth was expected to marry for the benefit of others. She seems to have had other plans. Shortly after taking the throne, Elizabeth is reported to have remarked upon the chorus of voices, admonishing her to quickly take a husband by saying, There is a strong idea in the world 
that a woman cannot live unless she is married. Her words to Parliament in response to their request were clear. She acknowledged their request that she marry, and she congratulated them for not actually proposing a specific husband. She talked around the notion of marrying, but made a couple of very telling statements. Quote, and in the end, this shall be for me sufficient, that a marble stone shall declare that a queen, having reigned such a time, lived and died a virgin. And even more pointedly, she said to the commons, quote, I am already bound unto a husband, which is the kingdom of England, and that may suffice you. Elizabeth was, in a way, claiming her body as her own. Even in a time when her most intimate medical details were shared with ministers, and when Parliament and her Privy Council continued to cajole and beg and reason and harass her about marriage, Elizabeth stayed single. She conducted diplomacy for years by appearing to consider and then ever so graciously decline marriage offers from abroad. She kept her courtiers on edge as she appeared to favor one and then another. She drove both Robert Dudley and William Cecil to distraction by keeping alive the possibility that she might marry Dudley, but never doing so. In fact, it was to Robert Dudley that she famously said, I will have but one mistress here and no master. Elizabeth may have wanted to marry Dudley. She seemed to hold him closer to her heart than any other man, but marriage would have limited her power and control over her natural body and her body politic and that power was something she refused to give up. Elizabeth gives us a hint about how she thought about the two bodies in her famous speech at Tilbury in 1588 when she addressed the troops in the midst of the battle against the Spanish Armada. The British Library holds an incredible document, a transcript of the speech made by Dr. Lionel Sharp, who was there. He records this famous line, quote, I know I have the body but of a weak and feeble woman, but I have the heart and stomach of a king and a king of England too. It might annoy those of us who are women to be referred to as weak and feeble, but I think Elizabeth is playing to the assumptions of her time. She claims her female personal body and she claims her royal kingly political body. She claims them both and plays both roles. No husband required. Now, if you've listened before, you know my absolute favorite piece of Tudor history is the small checkers ring that contains an image of Queen Elizabeth and the image of another woman in a French hood that I believe is Anne Boleyn. Lots of other people think so too. It's not just me. To me, that is such a lovely tribute to her mother, the woman who contributed to her personality, her strength, her determination, and her fierce and feisty nature. Mother and daughter lived in different times and played different roles, but their decisions seem connected to me in this way. They made their own way in the world, defying expectations and claiming their power in ways they could. In Anne Boleyn's case, it meant holding out for marriage. In Elizabeth's case, it meant holding out against marriage. In both cases, it meant holding out and holding on to an inner power and control. Anne Boleyn lost her life because ultimately her husband held the power. Elizabeth was the longest reigning Tudor, and when she died, the oldest monarch ever. Perhaps not having a husband was part of that outcome. Thank you for joining me for this special two-part look at Anne Boleyn and Elizabeth I. Join us next time as we consider some of the funniest, strangest, and most amazing tales of the six wives of Henry VIII. 
Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please share with a friend. Do send any questions or comments. I'd love to hear from you where we should explore next. And please subscribe and leave a review. I'd really appreciate it. I'm so glad we could explore history together. Till next time. Thank you.